Come, Holy Spirit. Come as wind and blow away all the debris that clings so closely to us. Come as fire and burn away the dross. Give us faith to walk in obedience to your word, to follow your commands, to do it with joy and trust because we have a living relationship with you. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Did this Advent go by really fast? I mean, it seemed like I woke up and it was Thanksgiving, and then I woke up and it's today. <laughs> so it's Merry Almost Christmas. So. Advent's one of those strange seasons. It, uh, it has us looking variously in two different directions. We begin the season by uh, looking into the future. We're thinking about Jesus' second coming. Could be tough times for a while, but then we win. <laughs> so we're pretty excited about that part of the... And then as, as the season progresses, we begin to, to do the 180-degree shift until we're now looking you know, over our shoulder back towards the first coming. And that's about where we are today. And then wait till Tuesday night. We're just really going to put it on. Of course, the principal figures, aside from Jesus in this, in this season, are Mary and Joseph. And... Uh, and here's some little statues, if y'all can see, Mary and Joseph. Y'all have seen lots of statues of Mary and Joseph. They show up in churches. They show up in, in uh, gardens. They show up in uh, all kinds of circumstances and settings. And um, they're usually serene, quiet, beatific. Yeah, the real story didn't involve plaster saints. Our God's a God of history. And when he involves himself in history, he involves himself in the lives of real flesh and blood human beings. People that lived at a real time in history. In Joseph and Mary's case, in the midst of a culture that was radically different than our culture. But people to buy folks whose hopes and dreams probably haven't changed very much in all the centuries that have trans since then. The story begins in Nazareth. It's a little town. Been to Nazareth. Back in the Lord's Day in the first century, it had something less than 300 people in it. The archaeologists would tell us there's only 25 to 30 dwellings in the town back when Jesus was being raised. It was not particularly well known. Think Two Egg, Florida. How many of y'all heard Two Egg, Florida? <laughs> if you're... If, if, if you blink, you have missed Two Egg, Florida on your way by. When, the, when Nathaniel, who will later become a disciple of Jesus, first heard that Jesus was from Nazareth, he said simply what was on everybody's minds in those days, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Two Egg? Well, if you live in Two Egg, you think it's a pretty nice place. Two young people are the focus of the Lord in this story. Joseph, who's a, a carpenter, if he follows the custom of the day, he's probably in his late teens. He's a righteous man, it says in Scripture. And Mary, 
who if they follow the cultures of the day is probably 14 or 15 years old. Wipe out of your minds what a 21st century Western marriage looks like because that's not how it worked in those days. First century Judaism, marriage really involved three different stages. The first stage we could call engagement. And that happened when they were kids, children. Most of the time, marriages were arranged, often with the help of a matchmaker. They were arranged between parents of one child and parents of another child and said, you know, it's going to be a good thing if our children get married. Marriage, you see, was, uh, it was considered way too serious a commitment to be left to the passions of a late teenager. I ran into this. Some years ago, uh, my wife and I, we were in Jerusalem. We were there on sabbatical, and, uh, and we were eating lunch at the refectory in uh, St. George's College there. And I was sitting beside a young deacon, Anglican deacon. He was from the Middle East. And we got to talking, and he was pretty excited. He said, you know, I'm getting married next month. I said, really? Tell me all about the girl. He said, well, I can't tell you too much about her. I said, well, how long did y'all date? He said, we never dated. What? What? He said, yeah, we never dated. What? He said, yeah, we never dated. Uh, our marriage was arranged. What? Are you kidding me? You're going to marry a girl you've never dated? He said, yes. I said, uh, why? He said, let me ask you a question. Of all the people that you know, does anybody know you better than your parents? I said, well, no. He said, does anybody have your best interests at heart even more so than your parents? I said, well, no. He said, exactly. So why wouldn't you count on the experience of parents who had already been married, knew what marriage was like, and wanted your best interests at heart? I went, uh. He said, let me ask you another question. He said, what's your divorce rate in the United States? I said, well, sometimes it approaches even 50%. He said, uh-huh, ours is 3%. You cut me off at the knees. Conversation ended, you know. I started something else. Squirrel, you know, <laughs> <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Engagement. And then comes a second step some years later called betrothal. When the couple reaches marriageable age, the engagement is ratified. And this is the point of no return for the young bride-to-be and husband-to-be. Um, if either party wants to break off the engagement, now you have to do it because once the betrothal is officially entered into, it's binding. It's absolutely binding. The betrothal lasts, generally speaking in those days, around a year or so. It, um, the bride still lived with her mom and dad. They had no sexual relations. The waiting time was to demonstrate the bride's purity and to give the groom an opportunity to put together the bride price <laughs> and also to make arrangements for them to have a place to live. The only way a betrothal could be ended was by divorce. They were called husband and wife during the betrothal. And by the way, this is a little aside, if the fiance of the wife died during the betrothal period, she was from then on called a virgin who was a widow. And finally comes the third stage, marriage. 
at the end of this year, the groom has this big party, and they go to the, to the bride's parents' house, where the bride is, and they have a party. And they have a party that oftentimes lasted three, four, five days. It was a major event in little towns in those days. Everybody did the very best they could. If you read Jesus' story of the wedding at, at Capernaum, you, you get that idea. And, um, and at the end of this grand celebration, days long, there's this big procession back to the bride's new home where he carries her and they consummate the marriage. This morning's story picks up during the time when Joseph and Mary are betrothed. Mary's been betrothed about three months or so when the angel of the Lord comes to visit her and informs her that God has chosen her to bear his son. You've got to imagine the trepidation that a 15-year-old receives when that information comes in her direction. But we know why God chose this girl. Because of her answer. Behold, I'm the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Wow. Still, she's pretty nervous about this. She has no idea how this is going to unfold, but it might unfold very badly. So she goes to her kinswoman, Elizabeth, who is six months pregnant with who is going to become John the Baptist. And I suspect during the three months she stays with, with her kinswoman, with Elizabeth, they have some pretty serious discussions about how in the world I'm going to deal with this with Joseph and the townspeople. Well, she does return, and she does share the information with Joseph. And it doesn't take much imagination to sort of look at what Joseph must have felt like. Angry, confused, betrayed, trying hard to believe this unbelievable story that the love of his life is telling him. He's trapped, you know. If he uh, turns her in publicly, she faces very real threat of being stoned for adultery because he's not the dad. If he marries her, it's considered a sin because he's now marrying an adulteress. So what's he going to do? Scripture says he does the best thing he can think of to do. He decides to divorce her quietly. And this is when the angel shows up to Joseph in a dream. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son. Shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The Bible says simply, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. That's about here that we can begin to have an appreciation of the reality of the story for these two. Mary and Joseph are obedient to the Lord's direction. In spite of everything, in spite of all the question marks, in spite of an uncertain future, because they have faith. But imagine what it would have been like for them to live in Nazareth. Mary's still living at home with her parents. Joseph's still working in the village. Before long, Mary obviously begins to show her pregnancy. And as she does, 
village tongues are going to wag. And they're going to look at her. They're going to make comments behind her back. And they're going to look at Joseph. And they're going to make comments behind his back. Imagine a 15-year-old girl standing up under that kind of scorn. Imagine a righteous young man allowing people to think the absolute worst of him. And you sort of get the picture. Is it any wonder why Joseph took Mary so late in her pregnancy all the way down to Bethlehem during the census? Why would he want to leave her behind to that? It also probably explains why after Jesus' birth, they stayed in Bethlehem. Remember the wise men, they don't come on Christmas, do they? It says when they came, they found the, ba- they found the infant in the house, the child in the house. The truth is that God doesn't simply create the world and wind it up and set it spinning willy-nilly across the universe. He loves his creation. He made us in his image. He grieved when we walked away from him. And that's why Jesus came into the world, to, to save us from the mess we've made of our lives. But our Lord simply doesn't use human beings as pawns on some chessboard. He invests himself in people's lives in truly intimate and personal ways. And in the process, he gives us vital roles, big and small, in his unfolding history of salvation for this world. And what that means is that sometimes God will ask us to do great things for him. And sometimes he'll ask us to do just little small things for him. But oftentimes, whether great or small, what he asks of us will be hard. It will cost us, sometimes dearly. And in the midst of it, he will ask us to trust him. And that will require of us to step out in faith, not knowing where our path's going to lead us. Oftentimes, in not very popular ways. And we will widely be misunderstood. And people will make small talk behind our back. Or sometimes worse. You know what gives people the strength to do that? Faith. Faith. We use the word to mean all kinds of different things. And when we do, a lot of times, we forget that words have multiple layers of meanings oftentimes. Think of the word love. I love fishing. I love my boat. I love Claudia, my wife. But woe unto me if she thinks that I put her in the same category as my boat. Love has lots of different meanings, lots of different shades on it. All words do. Hebrew says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's the kind of faith we see in Joseph and Mary, the confidence to do what the Lord asked them to do. Faith that no matter how hard the task was, no matter how much they might suffer, 
no matter where their obedience might carry them, faith that they would not be alone. Faith that God would be there in the tough times as well as the grand ones. We have the promise of Jesus himself. If you love me, he says, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. So why do so many of us who believe in Jesus struggle so much when the Lord calls us to go through the hard thing or to face ourselves into a difficult circumstance? Because we forgot that words have different levels of meaning. Love does, but so does the word faith. There's a Greek word they use in Scripture, pistis. It means variously both faith and belief. It's translated sort of however you feel like it at that point. Faith or belief. Depending on the context, that word has multiple levels of meaning. When, J when James wrote his letter, you remember, he says this, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Yeah. Contrast that with the response that Mary gives to the angel. Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Or Joseph's. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not till she had given birth. And he called his name Jesus. Different levels of faith. Most of us begin our journey, frankly, in faith with an acknowledgement that there is a God. And that's kind of a baby step in faith, but it's a step in faith, yeah. Once I did not believe, now I believe. There's, there's got to be a reason, there's got to be something behind this universe of ours. So there's a God. Baby step of belief. Then along comes more faith and we begin to embrace, oh, there really was a Jesus. He was the Son of God. He came. He ministered in our midst. He, he died for our sins on the cross. He was raised again on the third day for us. But the problem, and sadly, is a lot of us Christians stop the journey here in our minds with an acknowledgement. Yeah, there's a God. Yes, there's a Jesus. He even went, and I believe in the resurrection. But the belief here in our mind never somehow makes the 18-inch journey to connect with our hearts. And until both our hearts and our minds get involved, we won't change how we act. We won't change how we live. And so our faith gets stunted. We can't grow anymore. Paul has a term for Christians that have been stunted in this place, in their journey in faith. In his letter to the church in Corinth, he calls them people of the flesh. As infants in Christ, 
These are people who believe in Jesus, but it had made a difference in how they act their lives and act in their lives. These are people who are not ready for the solid food of adult obedience. And they're not ready because they don't actually know the God that's asking them or requiring of them to do things for Him. And they don't know Him because they haven't spent quality time with Him. In any relationship, we already know by our own experience, they don't sort of fall out of the sky on us, do they? Hi, I met this girl this afternoon. I think I'll marry her. Doesn't usually happen. Hi, let's go on the first date, and I'll share with you the deepest, darkest secret I have. How's that working for you? <laughs> no. You begin by, by sort of putting your toe into the water. You share something that's a little important, but if, the, if, if they mishandle it, you can live with that. And if they handle it well, you go, oh, that encourages me to, to trust a little bit more and to trust a little bit more, to trust a little bit more. Isn't that how every relationship grows? It's how our relationship with the Lord grows the same way. Because we spend quality time with Him. And, and God has told us the ways that bless Him for us to use in building a quality relationship with Him so that we can contact and be close to Him and He can contact and be close to us. What's it look like? Well, if you want your faith to grow, if you want your relationship with the Lord to grow, you got to spend that quality time with Him. Try spending time reading His Word. It looks like giving Him praise in worship. Not on simply high holy days, C&Es. You know what that is? Christmas and Easter Christians? It also means talking things over with him in prayer. Not just when there's a crisis, but like every day. It means sharing the good news with other people. Because we've come to love them because Jesus loves them first. Just like, oh yeah, he loved us first. When we walk our faith out in obedience, when we, when we spend quality time with the Lord, trying to listen to Him, trying to give Him praise and glory, trying to understand who He is from His Word, well, our relationship will grow deeper. It will. And our trust in Him will grow greater because we go through things with Him together and we find out, oh yeah, we're not necessarily trustworthy, but He is. And when that happens, more and more, the Lord will move that distance from the acknowledgement that there's a God and there's a Jesus, His Son, to our heart buying into, He loves me. And I love Him back. And I want to live my life in ways that bless Him. And I don't want to live my life in ways that break his heart. And so we come to love him more and more and more. So that when life circumstances or God's command calls us to face into something that's going to be really, really hard, the outcome of which we're not certain, 
we'll know by our own experience that we can step out boldly in faith because we've been through things with him before. And we know he's good for his promise. And our faith will become very much a mirror of Mary and Joseph's faith. Having confidence that no matter what may happen to us, in the end, all will be well. Because we have Jesus. Emmanuel. God with us. In the good times. And in the very hard times. And in all the times in between. And that's very good news. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we continue in worship and the band prepares. Mm -hmm.